During his program on Fox News late last week, a dejected Sean Hannity sheepishly sort of admitted that maybe the Republican Party just has gotten a little bit too extreme. Now, the reason Hannity was bringing this up in the first place, of course, is due to the fact that up in Ohio in a special election last week, a measure being pushed by Republicans that would have significantly limited the state's or the voters' ability to enshrine abortion rights into the state constitution, that measure from Republicans was overwhelmingly rejected by the voters. Ever since Roe versus Wade was overturned by the United States Supreme Court in the Dobbs decision, Democrats have done fairly well in elections. And I'll get more to that in a minute. Uh, Twitter user Simon Rosenberg, Rosenberg actually put out a great uh, uh, kind of summary of everything that's happened. But I want to talk about Sean Hannity's little sadness that he has. Here is what Hannity said uh, Thursday evening. The fear among many, many conservatives is this will chase away many suburban voters. Talking about the abortion issue. I think the American people, and I consider myself pro-life, I believe in the sanctity of life, but I think politically that there is, Republicans have got to say, as Bill Clinton once says, never thought I'd quote him, rare, legal, and I'd add the words very early in pregnancy. That seems to be politically where the country is. Maybe I'm wrong, but we'll see. That vote in Ohio is pretty, pretty sobering. So he almost came to it, right? He almost came to the realization that voters don't want these restrictions. Even in deep red states like Kansas, these bans, even early week bans, have been shot down by voters. So he's like very early, I'd add very early in pregnancy. Nope, that's not what voters want either. Voters want the ability to make the decision for themselves like they had under Roe v. Wade. So as I said, Simon Rosenberg, political strategist, he laid this all out on Twitter very succinctly. And these are the statistics, by the way, that Sean Hannity does understand. And he's starting to realize it's coming back to bite the Republicans. Uh, Rosenberg writes in 2022, after Dobbs, Dems outperformed 2020 numbers in five house specials by seven points, Kansas by even more. Voter registration across U.S. turned more Democrat. Democrat candidates dramatically outraised GOP opponents. Dems did better in early voting than in 2018 and 2020. Uh, in 2022, after Dobbs, in a so-called red wave midterm, Democrats picked up a Senate seat, two governorships, four state legislative chambers, kept the House historically close. They outperformed 2020 in Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, Michigan, Minnesota, New Hampshire, and Pennsylvania. They got to 59% in Colorado, 57% in Pennsylvania, 55% in Michigan, 54% in New Hampshire. It was an out astonishing performance. And he continues, in 2023, we've seen similar levels of Democratic intensity and overperformance. 56% in GOP held Wisconsin's SCOTUS seat. Unexpected wins in traditionally GOP cities of Colorado Springs, Jacksonville, uh, and Jacksonville. 57% in Ohio on issue one. And fundraising up over the 2019 cycle at this point. So Democrats have been doing exceptionally well because voters are pissed off. Voters had a right stripped away from them by Republicans, by this, you know, conservative activist, corrupt as hell, Supreme court, and they're angry. So when the issue is put in front of them, it gets voted down and that hurts Republicans across the rest of the ticket. 
And even Sean Hannity is starting to realize that to the point where he actually came very close to saying it on his program, right? He's like, maybe I'm wrong. You're not wrong. And you know, you're not wrong. You're wrong about adding the very early in pregnancy part. You're on the cusp of getting there, Sean. You just need to understand fully that Republicans have in fact become far too extreme for the American public and it's not boding well for them in elections. Is Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville from Alabama serving in the Senate illegally? Well, that actually depends on your definition of a single word in the constitution. And I will tell you what that word is in just a moment, but here is the backstory that came out late last week about Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville, because there seems to be a little bit of a discrepancy about what state the guy actually lives in. According to a massive report from the Washington post, Tommy Tuberville himself does not own any properties in the state of Alabama. He actually sold his remaining properties in Alabama over the summer. His only residences that he owns are located in Santa Rosa beach, Florida, which is in Walton County, Florida. I do believe that is part of Matt Gates's district, which means Tommy Tuberville lives in my district. He's actually about an hour down the road that way. So that's pretty dang close. I'm, I'm not exactly happy about that, especially as an Auburn football fan. Definitely not a fan, not a fan of Tuberville. I was hating him before he ran for Senate, by the way. Um, but anyway, the guy doesn't own any homes in the state of Alabama. What he does have is a home that he now claims on his forms, on some of his forms, is his residence. But that residence is actually in his son's name, who also happens to be named Tommy Tuberville. So that's created a lot of confusion. His son, even though his name is Tommy actually goes by Tucker, but legally it's Tommy. So the name on the property where the Senator says he is living in Auburn, the city in Alabama, um, looks like it's his, but it's not. It actually is owned by his son who now lives in New York and is in the real estate industry. The house is also in Suzanne Tuberville's name, who happens to be the Senator's wife. So she has the house in her name. It's also in the son's name, but it's not in the Senator's name. So little more confusion there, right? It gets even weirder because if they do in fact live in the state of Alabama, then why does his wife work in Santa Rosa beach, Florida as a realtor? Suzanne Tuberville, the Senator's wife, works at a real estate agency in Florida. She is not licensed to sell real estate in Alabama. So she's like a hundred percent in Florida. And he only owns property in Florida. In 2017, he announced on social media, I am officially retiring and moving to Santa Rosa beach, Florida. I live there now. He signed documents saying, this is my address in Santa Rosa, Florida. So how is he able to serve as a Senator from Alabama when he technically doesn't own the house? He's like, yeah, I mean, it's my son's house. I'm, I, I stay there. Even when they were on a recess, like this past summer, a recess to go meet with their constituents, he was actually down in Santa Rosa, Florida, signing real estate deals. 
selling his Alabama properties, selling one Florida property and buying another. So he's wheeling and dealing real estate in Florida, getting rid of his Alabama holdings. How the hell is he their senator? Well, as I said, all comes down to your definition of one word. And that word in the United States Constitution is inhabitant. Because according to the United States Constitution, it does not say that you have to be a resident of the state for senators. It says you have to be an inhabitant. So by definition, if he goes to that house in Alabama, even if he stays there for half an hour, he's like, Hey, look, I'm an inhabitant of Alabama. I am inhabiting you. I can run for office. And legally speaking, that's very difficult to challenge. And of course he does have an office in Alabama. So at that point, he's also inhabiting an office in Alabama. So he's inhabiting Alabama. So I think if you're talking legally speaking, is he serving illegally in the Senate? I think the answer is no. Is he a bit of a carpetbagger? Oh, hell yeah. Do the people of Alabama deserve better? Mm, yes. Yes. I'm not going to say that they deserve the misfortunes that they keep electing into office. I mean, eventually you do have to blame the voters, but you know what? There's good people in Alabama. There, there really are. There's some horrible ones. Trust me. We, we saw them on video, but uh, there, there's still some good people there. Um, I actually have a lot of friends there too, but here's the thing. Tuberville's spokesperson actually came out and kind of made the situation a little worse uh, by lying as usual. He said, coach has purchased and invested in real estate for decades. I love how you're calling this guy coach when he is literally not a coach anymore, but he is a senator. Like he's not a coach. He is a senator, but you're like, yeah, coach here, Ted, we got to go out there. We got to buy all this property we can get and just mail make, keep our eyes on the prize there. 110% <laughs> coach has owned pro the property in Santa Rosa beach for two decades. He bought it while he was coaching at Auburn. He goes there upon occasion. Uh, if he has a free weekend, it is within driving distance of Auburn. I'm sure many senators have vacation homes. Uh, we actually have confirmation, as I said, that he spent a lot of time there over this summer. It's not just, oh, out of a free weekend. Also, you're like, it's within driving distance of Auburn. Dude, it's 197.9 miles. Yeah, I looked it up because that's what people should do. That's what the Washington Post should have done. Like, is it driving distance? It's three hours and 45 minutes by car. I mean, technically that's driving distance. Although technically driving distance is anywhere you can get in a car. Even if it takes you 30 hours, it's still drivable. So that's an ambiguous term that means everything and also means nothing at the same time. Again, Washington posted a piss poor job trying to explain that to their readers because yeah, anywhere is within driving distance. If you have a car and money to buy gas. <laughs> so that's a pretty stupid thing for him to say. Again, Tommy Tuberville's home is closer to where I'm sitting right now than it is to Alabama. So he can be an inhabitant because he stays in that son's house every now and then because he goes to that office. But if you were to tweak that word inhabitant and replace it with resident, I think at that point, you'd have a very real challenge to get Tommy Tuberville disqualified from being in office. So it turns out that Donald Trump's lawyer, John Loro, his media appearances might not only 
be breaking the law in Washington, D.C., but they're now going to cause some pretty serious headaches when it comes time to actually schedule the trial. Now, the trial schedule is not going to be set until the first official hearing, not the emergency hearing they had on Friday, but the first official hearing in front of Judge Shutkin, which is going to come uh, in, in about a week or two. So at that point, she will set the trial date, but Special Prosecutor Jack Smith, in a filing at the end of last week, actually told the judge, listen, We've been watching this Trump lawyer, John Loro, go out there in the media all the time. He's actually laid out their defense strategy. He's already talking about what kind of motions they're going to file. Sounds like this guy's ready to go to trial based on his own statements. So we would like to request a trial date of January 2nd. We want to get this thing started and over with, possibly even before the very first Republican caucus, which will be Iowa on January 15th. Because again, they cited his media appearances and said, he's acted like he's ready to go. He's talked about Trump's right to a speedy trial. Let's give him what he wants. Loro, much like Donald Trump himself, needs to understand that sometimes keeping your mouth shut is the strongest and best strategy you can come up with. You don't always have to be flapping your lips. You don't have to accept every media invitation that comes your way. Sometimes you do more damage to your client that way, and Loro is finding that out the hard way. Here is what Smith put in that court filing. It appears that the defense counsel is already planning which motions the defendant will file. And then they added the footnote, which is a quote from Loro from CBS News on August 6th that says, we're going to be identifying and litigating a number of motions that we're going to file on First Amendment grounds or the fact that President Trump is immune as president from being prosecuted in this way. So... Sounds like you guys already know what you're going to do. Like if you're already saying like, we're going to do these motions, we're going to file the motions on these grounds. We're going to make these two specific arguments in court. We're good to go. Then let's go. I mean, honestly, at this point, like why did Jack Smith even say January 2nd? He could have said, look, judge, they're ready to go. I'm ready to go. Why wait till January 2nd? How about we do September 2nd? Hell, how about we start uh, tomorrow? I'm ready. They seem ready. It's going to cut into his media appearances, but you know what? Let's get this right to speedy trial going here. We don't want to violate his constitutional rights. Again, this is, I love this. I love every second of this because Jack Smith is good. By God, he is good at what he's doing. Quoting Trump's own lawyer's media appearances to prove that the defense has already laid out their case. They know what they're going to do. So we need to get this trial done quickly. Now, the only issue I have with this, of course, is the fact that let's assume the judge goes with January 2nd. I don't think she's going to go with January 2nd. I think it'll be somewhere in between where Smith proposes and what Trump's lawyers propose. But let's assume for a second, they get January 2nd. We get this whole thing wrapped up by Iowa, January 15th. Trump is convicted at that point uh, under this scenario. Trump gets convicted before any primaries and caucuses begin. He is at that point officially a felon. That throws that Republican race for a loop. Trump doesn't win the contest if that happens. 
I firmly believe it's going to be very difficult to want to vote for a guy or even have a convention with him when he is in an orange jumpsuit behind bars. So you're actually doing Republicans a favor if you do it in early January. So might I suggest we wait and do the trial till after super Tuesday, which is March 5th. So by then Trump may already have the whole thing on lockdown. So, you know, maybe start the trial March 6th, right? Let's make Republicans kind of dig their own grave on this. Let's have them reap what they sow, convict him after it's too late to change course. That would be my strategy. Again, I'm a spiteful bastard though. And Jack Smith is just trying to do his job. But if it were up to me, I'd wait and I'd make Republicans vote for the guy, then convict him because that's going to make that entire party look pretty damn stupid. Thanks for listening to today's Fair and Balanced Daily. Stay up to date with all of our content by finding us on YouTube at youtube.com slash fairandbalanced and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fairandbalanced.